and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. That was very good, by the way. Halfway through you did that, so you reached for the glass of wine. You can tell it's a Friday night they were recording this, and what the podcasters can't see, and unfortunately our guest can't see. I always think it's a surprise, but they've probably read the title. There's a bowl of Maltesers and Jelly Babies, both to celebrate that it's Friday and we're recording a podcast, and because my wife is not in the house. And you don't know how to cook proper meals. I don't know how to cook proper meals. Uh, What are we doing today? We've got a guest. We've got a guest. Um, Actually, so... um, we're particularly pleased because not only we have a guest, but we're we're very pleased to welcome back our first proper returning guest. I think the cliche declares you to be a friend of the podcast, whether you like it or not now. I think <laughs> I think at gunpoint or something. Um, but our first returning guest, uh, Dr. Waitman Wade Bourne, who the last time Waitman joined us, uh, we benefited from his academic skills and expertise and we If you remember, and if you don't remember, please go back and listen. Uh, We talked about why people do bad things, exploring the systemic and institutional failures that led to the Holocaust, which for those of you who say, oh, I hadn't heard that one, it is episode 43. And just, Waitman, we haven't spoken a huge amount since we talked last. That actually happens to be one of our most popular most downloaded and well regard, uh, well regarded episodes, and I'm not just saying that to get you on because you are here. So that's that's true. Um, but this time, and and this, we've been we've said this about a couple of our guests. We're so lucky because they have different angles on lots of these topics, and so this time is perhaps less leaning on academic knowledge and expertise, but more on practical knowledge around leadership and management. And the focus today, and I'm sure we'll wander around the topic a great deal, is around small teams. So in addition to being a professor, Waitman uh, was a US cavalryman and attended the United States Military Academy at West Point and subsequently commissioned into the first squadron of the 10th United States Cavalry Regiment and I think that's the correct, Waitman's nodding because it's important to say this in the correct order. Um, and I think I said this just before we hit record. For those of you who do listen to the podcast, apologies, in the New Year podcast, I implied Waitman was a Marine. And that is Oof. not the case. And he's looking hes looking politely disappointed. Um, and I, I saw your tweet this evening about um, our colleagues in the US Navy and obviously my sister organization. So it is very important to get it right. Anyway, uh, so whereas my expertise is in training stories, as Gareth keeps reminding me, uh, Waitman deployed to Iraq as part of uh, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom and commanded an Abrams main battle tank and then a Bradley fighting vehicle. So if ever there was a man who had an exciting company car, I think that was it. So Waitman, welcome back to the podcast. what have you been doing since we spoke to you last? Uh, well, I mean, I've been working on um, this digital reconstruction project uh, where we're creating this model of the Noska concentration camp that uh, I've just finished a book on. Um, we're getting starting to actually put it into um, Unreal Engine, which is a gaming engine 
um, that helps us to do the environment and stuff. So uh, any day now, hopefully we'll have our first building put in there, uh, which is exciting. And I'm, uh, we, we mentioned before we started, I'm taking my first, dipping my toes into the podcast world uh, with a, with a sort of uh, forthcoming in the next month or so podcast on the Holocaust. Uh, so I'm, if my voice sounds just incredibly um, syrupy and, and fluid, it's because I have my new podcast microphone here. That's um, we're, we're actually both impressed and slightly jealous. It's this magnificent podcast on a boom. I always think you're only a <laughs> podcaster when you've got a boom that you can. Are we, are we not made it yet? Well, we've bought ourselves our first professional wireless microphones, which I'm very pleased to say the first time we tried to use them. Um, it's an episode which has come out around. San am I allowed to tell the story? It was our Sandhurst yeah. podcast, and we thought, what better? and walk around the grounds of Sandhurst and say wise things. And as people run past atmospheric, yeah, we couldn't make our microphones work properly. So, uh, yeah, we well, lost, you won't ever hear that. We lost a lot of content. But well, by the fun. way, that's it fun. was a lovely walk around Sandhurst as it happened. So there you go. Anyway, that's not what we're here about. Waitman, we um, talked, uh, obviously, the last time I was talking about the Holocaust and you, you've talked just now about what you've been doing. But going back to your time in the army, before we get into small teams and we start getting nerdy about that, what drew you to the army and indeed the cavalry and and, and life in in main battle tanks? Yeah, I mean, I I want to I guess I want to preface my all of my comments with you know I, I was in the army for five years you know so there are many many hundreds of thousands of people out there with a lot more experience um, than I have, and um, so I'm only I can only sort of speak to to my very very small um, piece of the pie. Um, I mean, I got in, the reason that I, I went into the army was because I went to West Point. Um, and unlike Sandhurst, you know, West Point is a sort of full four-year university education along with, on top of it, all of the military sort of training and academy life. And as it, it's a it's a very, very good education um, with lots of lots of opportunities. Um, and, you know, your requirement to, to pay that back is five years service in the military. Um, which which was fine. I mean, I was I was happy to do that. Um, so I, you know, I, I I was obligated to serve for five years. I thought about applying to the Naval Academy, but ended up not, partially because of math. Also, I, I this gets I think perhaps to your question. Um, I think um, for me, the 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 kind of leadership that I imagined took place in the Army as an eighteen year old kid uh, appealed to me more than um, than what one might do in the Navy. You know, so to the extent that I chose to go in the army, it really came down to which academy I I chose to sort of attend or, or apply to. And so it ended up being West Point. And I think I might have mentioned this some sometime earlier, but uh, I chose, first of all, the armor branch because cavalry in the United States Army is a a sort of sub branch of the armor branch, which is which is essentially tanks. And a lot of my professors in the history department, for some reason at West Point, the history department is is sort of has historically, I don't know if it is now, but when I was there, it was kind of run by the armor guys. There was like a mafia of of armor officers at all different levels, um, you know, and and they were sort of our role models in a lot of ways. And you know, before class or you know, in social circles afterwards, you know, they you know, they tell you about the army because part of the the way you learn at West Point about the military, about the army, is through interactions with people that are serving officers that have been there, done that. And so, you know, I, I was I was taken with with the 
the armor world, you know, with with being on being in tanks. And I, I'll talk a little about maybe why that was. Um, and, it, you know, part of it is that if I was going to be in the military, I wanted to do something that you couldn't do in the civilian world. You know, so I didn't want to be finance or or personnel or, you know, things like that, which are obviously super important. And I'm not downplaying that at all. You know, but generally, if you're doing things in the military, they're under worse conditions. And I didn't want to do something that I could do in the civilian world, just under worse conditions. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to be in tanks. And the way that I got into the cavalry was I actually had my assignment changed when I was at the armor officer basic course. So once you graduate from West Point, you have, you know, a month or so of of, of leave. And then you report to your officer basic training course, which is basically all the all lieutenants because all of our all of us are equally second lieutenants whether you graduate from West Point or not um no one's any better than anybody else and so all the all the lieutenants from a certain from all the commissioning sources come together in various classes at each the home of each branch to learn you know what it means to be an infantry officer or an armor officer or artillery or whatever i guess about halfway through you sort of get your first assignment um, you already know what what post you're going to because you choose that at the academy. So I knew I was going to Fort Hood, Texas, but I was originally assigned to a straight armor battalion. I didn't want to be in an armor battalion. Um, so I I wrote to the squadron commander of the 1st Squadron 10th United States Cavalry and said, I'd, I'd really like to be in, in your unit um, and here's why, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, as often happens, they pulled the strings and changed the assignments around. So I ended up being in the cavalry rather than uh, just in, in a regular armor battalion. Um, and, and Whiteman, can you explain to Alice the difference between? Yeah, I mean, so and 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 part of this is is me feeling very old because uh, the unit that I was in, the kind of unit, uh, doesn't really exist anymore. I don't think because uh, the army has done all kinds of of rearranging, uh, you know, with with what it's doing and these kinds of things. Um, but the unit that I was in uh, was what's known as a division cavalry squadron. So every division, in this case, every heavy division, um, which means it's a, you know, we're, we're talking, the, the infantry is mechanized infantry. They're in armored vehicles as well. Um, and you have tanks and the, the engineers are heavy engineers. Um, you know, this is not um, the 82nd Airborne. It's not a, it's not a light infantry unit. Um, they have a division cavalry squadron assigned. And the role of the division cavalry squadron is to provide reconnaissance and security operations for the division. So uh, typically it's out front. It's uh, helping the division to, uh, to understand the battle space, uh, to find the enemy, as well as doing things like route reconnaissance, what bridges can hold tanks and what ones can't, um, which roads are the best roads, uh, identifying obstacles like minefields and things like that and finding ways around them. The heavy, the, the a, a straight armor battalion, I'll, I'll come back to this because I know it's a little complicated, but I want everybody to understand, you know, the differences. The One of the main differences is in makeup. And again, I'm speaking of what of a division, a U.S. division cavalry squadron, which doesn't exactly exist as such anymore. Um, but one of the things that's, that's immediately different is that you have a mixed, the makeup of the of each unit is is mixed. So a the, the, the squadron that I was in has three ground troops, uh, which is uh, not a troop in the British sense. A troop is a company-sized unit. And so three company-sized ground units, two company-sized air units of helicopters, 
of Kiowa Warriors, which are which are two man scout helicopters, and then it has an aviation maintenance unit and a headquarters unit with all of the logistic stuff um, as well. Within each cavalry troop, you have two maneuver platoons. Uh, so you have a tank, two tank platoons, and two scout platoons. The tank platoons are M1 Abrams tanks, main battle tanks, and the scout platoons are Bradley, in this case, cavalry fighting vehicles, um, which are analogous to the British listeners to sort of the the, the warrior, a sort of light armored vehicle thing. And you're paired up so that first platoon is, an, is a, a scout platoon, second platoon is a tank platoon, and you always work together. And then third platoon and fourth platoon always work together because there's kind of a push and pull even at the at the lower levels where the scout platoon goes out and has a tank platoon in support because the tank platoon is the is the fist um the one that provides a lot of the combat power compare that to a a, a straight armor battalion which okay. is just tanks so you have you know a unit a company sized unit made up of platoons of just tanks um and yeah. and that's it and it has you know obviously there are there are benefits and drawbacks to each um, but the way that this works at the division level is that the cavalry squadron goes out, we identify where the enemy is, and those big armor battalions come in behind us and smash yeah. them because we are we are more uh, flexible, uh, we're more adaptable. Yeah. We are one of the largest battalion-sized units or so in the in the in the U.S. Army or were, eight hundred yeah. plus people, um, which is presumably, pretty big. Presumably, as, as a result of that. The, the fact that you've got multiple troops that have different vehicles and different roles operating in one battalion, as well as the fact that your role is to go forward and find out what's going on to scout and do reconnaissance, means that the command right down to you know, individual vehicle level is going to be far more complicated, probably more complex, and you're going to need more autonomy uh, because you're finding stuff out and therefore knowing what's happening is, you know, there's going to be a lot more uncertainty. Is, is that a fair comment? Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, one of the things I was actually, I was actually going to mention. One of the reasons that I wanted to be in that unit is because it, you, you're doing essentially what, what we call combined arms operations at the, at the platoon level almost immediately. In a way that in a regular armor battalion, you're not necessarily doing that, right? So, you know, as a as a scout platoon leader, you know, I am I'm out in front, but I'm also potentially talking to uh, two helicopters, you know, who are out in front of me and are are overwatching me, um, which is something that you don't get to do as a lieutenant most in most examples and most units and. Um, the 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 division cavalry squadron works for the commanding general of the division. We are we are we were located for administrative purposes in the fourth aviation brigade, which is has the attack helicopters and the and the lift helicopters. But that was administrative. When it comes to actual fighting combat, we are the ones that go out and tell the division commander we 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 take his guidance and answer his questions. So we work directly for the division commander. Um, which is a which is an exciting thing as well, I think. Um, but there's, you're right. There's there's always a lot going on, and even as a tank platoon leader, which is sort of the entry level position for for an officer, like you you come in, 
and you 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 are essentially always assigned as a tank platoon leader because that's the basic that's the basic position right it's the the first lieutenants and the senior lieutenants are those scout platoon leaders because that's more difficult and so but and and as a tank platoon leader you get to sit back and learn what your job is going to be next by working with that scout platoon and watching what that scout platoon is doing so that you when you get when you get promoted to that job you know what's what's going on but there's and this is something that we can come back to uh, and it, it's true all mounted operations armored mechanized infantry as well and straight armor battalions there's just so much more going on at such a high rate of speed when you are in an armored or mounted unit or vehicle compared to um, a light infantry sort of situation and again my my light infantry experience is very very basic you know it's it's uh, West Point summer training these kinds of things but you know I've 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 led a, a quote infantry platoon of, of, of cadets again and not not soldiers but you know with a map and a compass and like we've done that kind of thing and you know it's it's a slower paced um, form of maneuver right it's more difficult in lots of other ways um, but you know you you can live for a week on a on a you know two foot by two foot map sheet yeah. whereas you know in Iraq we were going through you know like eight foot by eight foot map sheets in you know 12 hours and, and because everything's happening faster at a higher rate of speed and and i think it's more for me the it was that that was one of the challenges that i was interested in was was how to you know be able to do all of that stuff um on the move and and manage keep all those balls in the air it's, it's interesting as you were sort of talking about the the difference between the the recce the div recce versus the 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 main armored uh, battalions. I was sort of thinking about my time in the, in the Royal Marines and, and thinking how similar things were in terms of the complexity of working in a in a commando brigade where you are working very very closely with very different capabilities. You're working closely with the navy. You're working closely with elements of the army that are supporting you with uh, your artillery support, your aviation, and, and all of the other bits and pieces. And it was until you talk, started to talk about speed across the ground, because my experience is, is almost entirely that light infantry commando operations. Uh, and I remember having a very similar conversation again when I was talking with an expert in jungle warfare. And it's a whole, um, it's a whole scale again, smaller, smaller, because in jungle warfare, you're moving sort of hundreds of meters a day in light infantry you're moving kilometers a day maybe tens of kilometers if you're pushing it in the armored world you're moving hundreds of kilometers and so it, it's just a whole different scale of problem set and, and some of that is easier some of that is harder but it's very very different we need to take a short break now we'll be right back So, uh, training, training dip. <clears throat> always. Was learning, yeah, always. Um, learning to fly an aircraft and or navigate an aircraft, that's what I was training to do. The complexity and the, the ball juggling was something that was staggering in terms of fly your aircraft safely, fly another aircraft safely, 
and prosecute a ground target. And that, and, and actually, to be perfectly honest, that's where I failed and that's why I'm no longer, you know, I didn't pursue a career in the Royal Navy. But that is a whole different skill set and natural ability. How did people say to you, Waitman, this is what you've got to do, go do it? Or did they, they think about that in training? In other words, were you trained to manage this complexity or were you trained as if you were a light infantryman? Because it seems like, as you say, you've got to fight two aircraft as well while you're you know, hiding from another aircraft and while checking something out. How did you train for that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, and it gets back to, to exactly the point that I think Gareth made earlier as well, which is to give you a sense of, of how complex things can be, right? Let's let's say that we're on a, a movement to contact, right, as a scout platoon. And so I'm, at this point, a scout probably, platoon in a... It's probably worth explaining for, to the listeners uh, what uh, an advance to contact yeah. is. So yeah, contact, so... Contact means to engage with the enemy. Right. So an advance to contact is to move forward to find the enemy by maneuvering into there. Exactly. Right. So, or, or we can call it, you know, a zone reconnaissance. Um, you know, it's, it's basically for your, for the civilian listeners, you know, it, it's, it's what you would expect. You know, you, you're moving forward and, you know, you're trying to identify where the enemy is or, or just identify terrain features, river cross, whatever. Right. Um, in a scout platoon, again, in the, in the div cav, uh, it was six vehicles. So, uh, six Bradley fighting vehicles um and i think we'll, we'll talk more about sort of each vehicle sort of makeup but i was a, a scalped leader of, of six vehicles uh which are broken down into sort of two uh, three sets of two wingmen teams right uh me the senior scout and the scout platoon sergeant each have a wingman who is a less experienced guy but anyway so we're moving say we're moving at 10 15 25 kilometers an hour maybe more I'm I'm first and foremost I have to navigate. So I have to know where I am on the map and where I'm going on the map. I have to make sure that my platoon is arrayed in the proper formation, depending on what we're doing, right? Whether it's a all the vehicles in a row on a line or you know, sometimes in a in a V formation or whatever. Um I've got to sort of keep an eye out for them and where they are. Uh, so I'm talking to them on the on the platoon radio net. Um, I'm talking to my vehicle sometimes on my platoon internal intercom to make sure that my driver is going the right direction or that my gunner is scanning in the right in the right direction, uh, moving his turret around. So I'm I'm talking on, on those two sort of uh, communications. I'm also reporting up what we call in the military graphic control measures. So on a map, we'll draw a line that'll say, you know, this is phase line blue. When you reach this, I call up to my commander and say, I'm now at phase line blue. And he has that on his map too. So he, it's a quick sort of uh, shortcut of, of reporting where you are without having to put in a 10-digit grid coordinate every single time, right? And they help to they help to control our maneuver um, and make things quicker because then the commander can say, you know, great, go to phase line red or go to checkpoint two and doesn't have to do anything except say those and I know where they are. So anyway, I could be talking telling him those things and also responding to his his questions or or directives depending on what we're doing i could also have a, a set of helicopters that are also talking to me and saying here we see this or, or i could say hey can you go look at this thing and all of that is taking place 
without any enemy contact, right? Without fighting anybody. And so it, it, it very quickly can be very, very, very complex. Um, and it's all happening at a, at a high tempo because you're moving, right? Um, it's not as it's not in in some ways, and this is not to in any way purloin or to 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 denigrate my comrades in the light infantry, but it's much more difficult to to take a minute and take a knee and look at the map when you're moving along with a, a squadron that's moving at 25, 30 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Right. And if you make a mistake, it's it's compounded because now you're you've gone in the wrong direction or whatever. But they don't just throw you into that. You know, you you have there are the, the military, the U.S. Army has some really, really great simulations um, where, you know, you go into a big, a giant building, you know, the size of a warehouse and they have these little boxes that you get inside and inside it's like a tank. It's exactly like a tank turret. And, you know, you have screens instead of vision blocks and sights. But within those, you know, you can you can look around and see notionally other vehicles in the simulation. And so and and the simulation of, you know, confusion and talking on the radio and maneuvering, all of that is, is I think, fairly well replicated within that. Um, and then, you know, you have you have training exercises where you go out in the field and you do these things at the platoon level, at the troop level, and at the squadron level. And let me let me be very uh, very up, up front. You have great NCOs, non-commissioned officers, sergeants, oh. people who have done this for as long as you've been alive, in my case, you know, who, if they're good, will train you because they know, they, they have a good idea of what you should be doing as well. And, you know, they will they will help you to learn what you need to do. Um, and, you know, one of the greatest moments, I think, as a long, your young lieutenant is when you realize that your platoon sergeant sort of is ready to take the training wheels off of you and 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 trust you to, like, do stuff. You know, you're that's not like, getting killed. It's great. You know, it's great when when you sort of feel like, um, you know, OK, like I've made it. You know, he's he he knows what we're doing here. Um, yeah. So so the. It, it's a. I think it's like anything else. I mean, and I'm sure it's similar in the light world, um, with field craft and all kinds of things. You know, you learn, um, you learn how to do these things, but you only learn them really by, by doing it. Well, it's, it's the really drill. You, I mean, we we talked way back when you talked about a counter piracy that you drill and you drill and you drill and you drill. It's like you know, my my son's going to be starting to driving uh, later this year. And I remember the first time I tried to drive a car and your brain was entirely focused on the act of changing gear and then and then looking in a ring and, you know, remembering your drills to the point where you were quite dangerous because you were so busy trying to remember how to do those things. You weren't actually paying attention to anything else. And over time, you drill and you drill and you drill and you drill. And all of a sudden, these things become easier. You're you're mentally with cocktail party hearing, listening on the radio for your call sign and ignoring anything that isn't your call sign. And you don't have to worry about navigating because I know where I'm going, but it's, I, I think it's that, except that, except that in this case, you know, you, you can't do that because you're always monitoring that troop net so that you know what else is going on. So along with everything else I just mentioned, I need to know what first platoon is doing. If I'm the third platoon scout leader, I need to know what the first scout platoon is doing. Where where are they? Are they in contact with the enemy? Uh, what are they up to? Um, you know, 
is an artillery mission. So, so you, you, you have to sort of be able to encompass all of these things. And we haven't even started talking about gunnery yet, which is a whole mm. another set of, of skills training. Like how do you take that? How do you turn that vehicle into a weapon system? Yeah. Um, I, I think there's another two, area. Two quite important points though. One is yeah, Chris's analogy of driving is quite a good one, which is, and it, it comes back to this this idea of the things that aren't going to change. You you drill, you practice, you do repeatedly until they become muscle, muscle memory, which allows you then to concentrate on the things that will change. Right, and, and that's to your point of you know, understanding where all the other vehicles are, how that relates to the terrain, what the enemy are doing, what they're likely to do next, and then starting to think about tactics and gunnery, and because that's engaging with a changing environment. But the stuff that yeah, in the driving analogy, the stuff that won't change is how you change yeah. gear, the 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 pressure you put on the accelerator, and that the effect that has on the vehicle. It that that's really important. I think going back to what you said about NCOs training you as a young officer, and and it's exactly the same in the in the light infantry commando world that I come from, where as a young troop commander you are put in charge notionally but you have a very strong troop sergeant. You have very, very capable corporals and lance corporals um, who will help you because they have a huge amount of experience. And, and part of that is learning where, where you're ready to take those training wheels off. And that in itself is a, is a, a sort of a lesson that it's a, it's a baptism of fire that all young officers have to go through. Uh, and some get it, get the balance right better than others. But I think importantly, this idea of training people to get to the point where they're ready is what in the commercial world we talk about when we talk about uh, safe to fail. You know, being in a position where you're allowed to make mistakes without it being career ending, without it causing you know, significant harm, getting you ready to actually be able to do this for real. And I think in the commercial world, when they when we talk about uh, psychological safety, safe to fail, one of the things that's often missed is assigning capacity to give people chance to practice, so they're not doing it for real. But I think there's there's one extra thing which, perhaps arguably by accident or necessity of the role, that's different in that, and the fact that you have NCOs who you will be working with and who have done it, I think that's unusual. So the safe to fail says, you know, you can do your job, get it wrong, and nothing terrible will happen, but you don't, by definition, have that person standing next to you having the short leash of what's right and what's wrong. You might do, yeah. but it feels like that's more interesting. Well, I think that, that's an interesting point because there's no reason in the commercial world that couldn't be the case. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what the reason is. We don't, there isn't, there isn't, there aren't spare people to do that. Yes. And that, and the way that a, you know, an, an, an armoured vehicle is, is that there will likely be NCOs in your vehicle or next to your vehicle. But the, the, the point, I mean, I, I don't disagree with your point. It's just, I think it's too easy to say, you know, commercial organisations can do this. At the end of the day, the commercial organisation has the smallest number of people typically to do the job and and the natural makeup of that group doesn't doesn't cater for that i'm cheating and i'm gonna 
change gear. Did you see what I did there when I said change gear? I, I do. So the, 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 the premise of today was about small teams. And what's interesting is we've started at the top. And Waitman, you've done a brilliant job of sort of describing the role of the broader unit, the part it plays in the broader fighting world, and the challenges of you, as it were, connecting upwards and being a part of that world. Now let's sort of turn it around and talk about the fact it's a big squeaky metal box that I suspect is quite warm and noisy. Um, I've I've never really spoken to armoured vehicle personnel before. What's it like fighting, living, eating, living in a tank? I mean, is this a nine to five activity and you pop out the door, you turn the engine off and pop into the hotel? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, first and foremost, where I think what makes what makes the armored world a little bit different from sort of all of these other branches, even or branches of the even of the army, is that that at the end of the day, you are still a member of that crew. You know, an infantry platoon leader is the platoon leader of the infantry platoon. That's his job. That's what he does. It's his only job, right? In a tank platoon, you are the tank platoon leader, but you're also a tank commander of your individual vehicle because there are only four people on that vehicle and you're one of them. And, and you know, everything on a tank is very, very heavy. And everything, you know, you, 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 there are certain things that as a, both from a leadership perspective to show that you are a, a, a sort of selfless leader, but also from a practical perspective, you have to be proficient, the same, have the same level of proficiency as each one of your NCO tank commanders, in addition to your other jobs as, as a tank platoon, because, because you have to fight that tank as well. So you have to be able to, to perform the gunnery stuff to fight your, uh, to, to, to fire your, your gunnery engagements successfully. You have to know how to do things like change track. If you throw track, depending on the combat situation, you know, yes, you may jump tanks, meaning if your tank breaks, because you have to fight that platoon, you may switch tank with somebody else and keep going, and they have to they have to fix your tank, um, which nobody likes to do. But you have to know how that vehicle works. You have to know how to. Like, I mean, you should, because part of this is knowing what your subordinates' jobs are as well. You know, know how to put fuel in the tank, know how to change the oil, know how to change the oil, how to change the 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 air filters, right? Um, all the kind of things that that you need to know as well because you're in this 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 constrained box of metal with three other people or in the case of a bradley potentially four other people but in, in a way that's kind of like a, a naval vessel you know like it without the tank working you're just kind of four guys um it's 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 the tank working and you being able to fight that tank that makes that tank a a, a weapon system um, you know, if the tank breaks because you're not doing proper maintenance on it, you've just lost the ability to to have a tank in combat, and now you're just four guys on a on a broken piece of equipment. Um, so, Gareth, so the, Gareth, Gareth gave a talked, and I could see him drifting when when he told the story of the sort of the first time. All of a sudden, congratulations! This is your platoon. Now go and and you talked about getting lost and panicking and going I can't. What was your the first day you stepped up to the tank and said good morning gentlemen 
I'm your new lieutenant. I'm pleased. Yeah, so, what, what did you do? What was your what was your inspiring leadership talk to the team? Well, no. So when I when I showed up at my unit, I my my platoon sergeant, so the the sergeant first class, the most senior NCO in the platoon, was away at what's called Master Gunner School. Um, Master Gunner School is where really good NCO gets sent to learn everything about how that weapon that gun system works. They're the ones that come back to the unit and are kind of like the subject matter expert in the unit for gunnery and how that weapon system works. And it's a very involved and very difficult course. So he was gone. Uh, his name was Sergeant First Class Richard Yankee, which is an amazing name. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and Sergeant Yankee was gone. And so I, I came to my unit without a platoon sergeant because he was away at school. And my my platoon told me that he was all. They all told me, "Watch out," because he's deaf in his left ear. So I was like, "Okay." And they told me he was a really mean and, and, and scary guy for like weeks. And and then and then Sergeant Yankee finally comes back, and he's from Massachusetts, and he has kind of like a thick Boston accent. And you know, I was I was talking to him, and finally he's like, "Why are you yelling at me, sir?" Because he wasn't deaf in his left ear, <laughs> but they told me that, and I had believed them. So I was kind of like yelling, you know, I don't. It wasn't he he was a really amazing NCO in that he said, you know, this is this is your platoon, asterisk when you're in the field. But he had a just a really good ability to pull me aside when I needed to be pulled aside, but nobody else knew about it and and helped me to sort of to learn. And he was a really gruff guy and he liked to give me a lot of shit. But once he realized that 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 was I was cool with that, um, we had a really 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 good relationship, um, which is much different than my second platoon, where my platoon sergeant was was weak and it was a much different environment. Um, I, I told him well I, I, eventually because I think that the best way to take over leadership of any organization is to not do a whole lot when you first get there. Um, you, you know, you want to kind of see how things are going and kind of observe. I mean, you're in, you're still in charge from day one. And, you know, if something goes wrong, it's still your responsibility. But I, I tend to think it's a mistake to sort of run in and say, okay, I'm, I'm here now. And here's some, here's 10 new policies that I want to enact, et cetera, et cetera. Rather than just sort of seeing how things work, you know, and, and if things are working and there's no compelling reason to change them, then you, you don't need to change them, particularly when you're the new guy who doesn't really know how things are supposed to work in the first place. Well, how, how did you, so I'm, I'm making some assumptions here that part of this role where you're in a small metal box of people where you doing something stupid could hurt them or kill them at some point. Presumably there was an element of them having this notional sense of, do we trust this guy? Is he is he gonna kill us or is he gonna look after us? If If that's true, how do you how did you build your credibility with them? How did you get them to the point where they're like, yeah, I mean, you know, he's an officer, whatever, but he's our officer, as it yeah. were. He's all right for an officer. Um, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things, and again, I'm I'm in some ways speculating because I never was in an infantry infantry platoon um, or another kind of military unit or another military branch. But there's nowhere to hide in a tank. You you can't hide from your crew, uh, not just your mistakes in the tank itself, but they're all listening to the radio too. So 
if the commander chews you out on the radio, unlike an infantry platoon where it's just you and the radio guy that are listening to the radio, everybody hears you. You know, they all hear that that you screwed this thing up. So I think it's really important that you come to terms with that early. And, you know, you just be authentic because you can't fake you can't fake some sort of, you know, professional distance in a, in a way from these guys. Um, I mean, obviously, you always have the professional distance that you're an officer, but, you know, you're in you're in this group. You're in this very confined space, very intimate environment with these people. And, you know, they're going to see you screw up when you screw up. They're going to see you do great things when you do great things. Um, and you just have to, I think, be very open and honest about it. And particularly when I first got to the tank, one of the benefits of being the platoon leader is they give you the, usually they give you the best gunner in the platoon. Because really that gunner is is in many ways functioning as the tank commander because you're you're often at orders or you're doing something else and he's often the one or now he or she um is the one that is you know really doing the day-to-day stuff and also you know when you're in combat is is such a good gunner that it doesn't require a lot of a lot of sort of supervision but i ask a lot of questions you know i was like how do you do this how do you do that you know what is how does this thing work? How do how do I how do I change track? Let me get down. Let me put my coveralls on and get down the motor pool with you and do these things. Which you know, and again, this is it's not that I was the greatest leader in the world. I think this is, this should be obvious. But number one, it shows your your crew that hey, you're 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 part of the team. You're not you're not better than they are. You're not too good to get down and turn wrenches and wash the tank off. You know, like I always at the wash rack on the way, when you come in from the field, you do, you go to these massive like bird baths, they call them, which are these massive concrete sort of pools that you drive the tank in. And then you have like fire hoses and it, you know, it takes a good half a day to clean all the mud off these things. And, you know, a bad officer would, would sort of jump off the tank. And so there were some that did this and go back to the headquarters and, and do stuff, you know, paperwork or whatever. I think a, a, a the most basic good officer stays there and cleans the vehicle with everybody else. Because otherwise, as we talked about earlier, your crew is down a person. Everybody else has four people doing it. And if you just take off and leave, they only have three and their tank has to be just as clean as anybody else's. So I always thought that it was really important to, to know the job of everybody else, not so I could correct them, but so I would know what they should be doing. But also, you know, if we're out in the middle of nowhere and something goes wrong, I need to know how to fix it, you know, like anybody else does. So, and I think that that builds a lot of, of team, team building or, or cohesion within that group, you know, where, where they, you know, they, they see you all the time and they're always watching you, always watching you. And, and so you can't, you have to just be yourself and hopefully yourself is a, is a, a good inspiring person, because if you're not, they're, they're going to see it. Um, yeah, and they're going to if you fall apart on the radio or you fall apart because you're stressed because you get lost or whatever, they're going to see you because they're literally like right there with nothing else to do. But what sort of look at you? Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Please join us again for next week's episode when we'll continue the conversation with Waitman Bourne on small team leadership. You've been listening to Battling with Business. Thanks for listening. Cheerio.